Hello everyone and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic the Gathering at every level. From popper leagues to top 1000 mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at puremtgo.com where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor, MDGO Traders, and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show, from YouTube, podcasts, and more, here's this week's episode from ConstructedCriticism.com. Hello everyone, it is currently about 3.06, we'll just go ahead and round it up, 3.10, Friday, January 16th, is that right, 15th, January 15th, I can't, I can't do numbers apparently, January 15th, 2021, God, it feels good to say that number, even if it has been a show the likes of which is best described by words I can't say. My name is Adam, and it is time for this, the 101st trip down the homeward path. Back to flying solo. There's no one in this car beside me to deride me, and I will, I promise I'll stop the song references in a minute. But first, I've got a few questions. Are you a fan of Magic the Gathering? I mean, I really hope so because you're here listening to me ramble on about it week after week after week. But in spite of that, or in along with that, rather, do you have something else going on in your life that's more important to you? Listen, I, I know the feeling. Job career, partner, children, any and all of the above, like, I'm, I'm right there with you. If you listen to episode 100, you got to meet my wonderful wife, and then we have three children, and I work 42 plus hours a week, so, like, I feel your pain. Other things have to come first. In spite of that, are you still seeking every avenue that you can to improve and sharpen your magic skills on the odd chance that you get that one weekend where you really get to show what you're about. Well, if that sounds like you. Hope you got some creatures on the battlefield because we're about to be trying to devour the competition. But first, a word from our sponsor. Our sponsor is PureMTGO.com. PureMTGO.com is one of the largest collections of Magic the, Gather- blah, 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 blah. Magic the Gathering content on the web. Like a brain short-circuited in the middle of a word. I haven't had that happen in a while. (laughs) Largest collections of Magic Gathering content on the web. Listen, if it's Magic-related and you want to find it, you can probably find it there. Everything from Pauper Leagues, Commander, top-tier competitive 60-card formats, and Theory, and Limited, and I, I don't care what it is. It's probably got some stuff on Pure MPGO. There's just a lot to choose from, from a lot of fantastic creators, and you are doing yourself a disservice if you don't check it out. And speaking of fantastic content from great creators that you are doing a disservice by not checking out, head over to the rest of the network, constructedcriticism.com. Listen, we just added Sam Black to do a limited podcast. It's called Drafting Archetypes. If you haven't checked it out yet, I highly recommend it. It is absolutely phenomenal. And I can't wait to put some of these ideas into practice 
uh, once Caldheim hits Arena and MTGO respectively, I'm eagerly awaiting the chance to use it. But there's other content on the network too. There's Spencer and Michaela on Mythic Cast. There's Spencer and Matt heralding the return of Constructed Clash. There's uh, Mason and Allie with Constructed Criticism. And there's uh, Christian and... I believe it's Christian and Brad. I'm sorry if, I, if, if it's... It's Christian and Brad. Yeah. My brain is non-functional today, y'all. But again, you're doing yourself a disservice if you're not checking out the content on the network. That's just all there is to it. Um, and while you're browsing the web, if you really do like this show as much as some of you have let me made it known you do, head over to patreon.com slash homewardpathmtg and you can show your support in a very, very, very direct way. Listen, everything I make, every major piece of content that I put out is going to be free. Because if there's one thing I hate, it's good content behind a paywall. It's not any, any kind of a dig at the creators. I just don't have the money and I, you know, I don't have it. So I wanted to be someone who didn't do that. But if you like what I'm doing enough to help me keep doing it, head over there, become a patron, and I will see to it that it gets put to good use in some form or fashion. And with that out of the way, let's dive into our first segment. Our first segment every week is normally at least every week. Last week was a bit of an anomaly, but it's not every day you get to do a podcast with your magic playing awesome wife. So we're back to business as usual this week with Budget Spotlight. Now, Budget Spotlight is normally where we take a profile of common or of uh, uncommon, rare, and mythic in a commander-focused card centered around the theme of the episode, but I decided to kind of shake things up a little bit this week for a few reasons. One, the un as we continue the color series that I started way, way back in episode 91, I believe it was, may have been right at episode 90, but as we continue that color series, branching out into the three color combinations... It is really hard to find remotely playable uncommons that are three colors or more. As it just is. But even worse than that is it is really hard to find like good playable rares and mythics in three or more colors that aren't either prohibitively expensive or are just like a really loose definition of like playable and good investments other than in Commander. So with that in mind, I decided to make an effort for this this part of the series as we're doing the three color combinations. We're starting with the shards. I wanted to make this point, or this one, focus on one card from each color and then one multicolored card, regardless of rarity that I feel like is undervalued and valuable to have in your collection, either from a gameplay or financial standpoint. And the first one we're going to talk about is the ambassador to the one of the ambassadors of the game of Magic. It is one of Magic's most iconic, one of Magic's most defining cards, and that card is Lightning Bolt. Now, Lightning Bolt is, for those of you who don't know, a single red mana to deal three damage to any target. One red, three damage, no strings, and it's an instant. Next. 
Lightning Bolt currently retails, if you get any of the newer copies from any of the regular printed copies from M10, M11, or any of the, the reprints it's had in like dual deck series or anything of that nature, Lightning Bolt currently retails at about $3. Which, I mean, financially speaking, is just not bad. $3. So I have here in the notes, it is iconic, defining removal spell. And I mean that quite sincerely. It's obviously one of the first cards you see when you start looking at the History of Magic Gathering. It's one of the most iconic spells ever printed that is still being used today that has not been banned into oblivion or power crept by way of some other cards that neutralized it. Like, if you're playing Legacy, you've still got arguments you can make in favor of playing Bolt. If you're playing Pauper, you still probably want to play Bolt. If you're playing Modern, you want to play Bolt. You, know, you, you have to talk yourself out of playing Lightning Bolt. The fact that this card was standard legal while I played Magic is nothing short of an absolute godsend because I got to experience playing it a lot. And I love it. But it's not just a burn spell. It's, it's primary application in most constructed formats. It's a removal spell first and a burn spell second. It's really important to remember that. One mana, three damage is, is great going upstairs because if you've got enough of those, you're way ahead of the philosophy of fire's curve. But when we're talking about one mana, three damage to any target, like this thing's trading up with a bone crusher giant for two life. This thing's trading up with goblin chain whirlers. This thing would be like, this thing would be really stinking good in pioneer if it were legal. But it would power creep like five other cards if it were. And it would probably make the burn deck too good. Or the prowess deck, or the Rakdos Luris, Croxa, Young the Rakdos Arcanist deck, I think is what they're calling it now. Regardless, like this thing would be really, really, really good in Pioneer today, even though Pioneer has Uro and Croxa and Winota and all these other busted magic cards that have come to define what power creep looks like in magic these days. Bolt would still be very, very good. And it, to that end, it's a deceptively flexible magic card because it hits planeswalkers, it hits creatures. Um... In conjunction with something like Soulscar Mage, it can shrink creatures, allowing your Soulscar Mage to, as I love to say, punch way above its weight class. Like, I could do an entire episode on applications of Lightning Bolt and its variants. That's how good and flexible this card is. So you can do way worse for $3. Like, even in Pauper, getting a set of these for $12 and it being, you know, somewhere around half your budget for your deck, you're still not upset about it. It's so good. So with that in mind, let's move on to our next card, which is Traverse the Ulvenwald. For those of you who don't know, Traverse the Ulvenwald is a single green mana 
search your library for a basic land card, reveal that card, put it into your hand. But if you have Delirium, which is four or more card types in your graveyard, you can instead search your library for a land or creature, reveal it, put it into your hand, and shuffle. And Traverse the Ovenwald is currently sitting at a price of about, about $350. Uh, and that's about the time I noticed this little green sorcery was actually a giant lizard creature from the Paleolithic era. And I promise to only make that joke when it's appropriate. <laughs> I mean, the, the amount of creative deck building it takes to make this thing good... is not as much as it seems. Especially when you start looking into older formats that have the benefit of fetch lands, but even in uh, Pioneer and Historic, where you have, you know, if it ever ends up in Historic, when they do uh, either Pioneer Masters or, like, Gatewatch Remaster, I don't, I don't know what they're going to do to finish fleshing out the card pool for Pioneer. Like, if this thing ever ends up on Historic... Like, it is one mana. If you can get different card types into your graveyard, it becomes Worldly Tutor that puts it into your hand. It, that, that's, that's a really high ceiling. Like, really high ceiling. Go get any creature for one mana seems real strong. And just a tiny bit of setup you know the card types being what they are uh, creature artifact enchantment land sorcery instant planeswalker and tribal I'm still not just dead sure why tribal got put in there but it is what it is um Just the act of playing a land, Thought sees your opponent on turn one, play and activate Fable Passage on turn two, you've got two card types in the graveyard. Leave a, a Fatal Push their creature, that's three card types. Play and sacrifice a creature, that's four. Now you can traverse for full power even something as innocuous as using traverse to go get grim flare like if, if your your low end on power level is going and getting a 4-4 with trample that helps you fix the top of your library and that's the fair application that's one of the fair applications you can do a lot worse than that if you buy in, you know, full bore and you're going Traverse for, I don't know, copies of Siege Rhino or Blink Effects, whatever it is you're going to get, once you start putting real effort into this thing and it turns on faster, it gets even stronger. It, it literally goes from being Lay of the Land to being Worldly Tutor that puts it into your hand. Worldly Tutor costs a lot of money this does not and due to the fact that it 
you know, it has that ceiling near and around the power level of Worldly Tutor. It also has a ton of value in Commander shenanigans where everybody's playing artifacts and lands that go to the graveyard. Even if you're not playing fetches, you're playing stuff like Terramorphic Expanse, Evolving Wilds, Ash Barons. Things that fix your mana and put lands into your graveyard. So this thing can turn on there. And it can go get you dumb stuff. I don't know about you, but I really like being able to go get my dumb stuff. Especially in a format where I only get to play one copy of it. So, I mean, at its core, at its peak, this card is very, 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 very good. It's fair, but powerful. And you can do a lot worse for $3.50. Now moving on, our third card is Bolas of Citadel. In case you hadn't guessed, we did a red card, we did a green card, now we're doing a black card. Uh, Bolas of Citadel is a little on the, the pricey side for what we normally do for Budget Spotlight, admittedly. But on both fronts, it's uh, triple black and three for an artifact. I think a legendary artifact. And generally speaking, if you ever have more than one of these on deck, you are either winning or losing directly because of that fact so it doesn't really matter uh, you can look at the top card of your library you can cast spells from the top of your library by paying life equal to their converted mana cost instead of paying mana and then you can tap bolus of citadel sacrifice 10 other permanents and target opponent loses or maybe it's each opponent, I can't remember. Uh, target or each opponent loses 10 life. So, first and foremost, there's the obnoxious side of it, which is the pseudo-combo side of it, uh, which we got to experience first in War of the Spark Standard in conjunction with the Explore creatures. If you can cast spells that gain life, this thing's dumb. Because from any, like, reasonably safe life total, you can not only recur your life total and keep going, you can buff it even more. You know, you cast Wild Growth Walker into Jade Light Ranger if you're at 7 life. And you will gain 6 of it back. So you'll go up to 8. Because you spent 5 to gain 6 more. Well, then you cast another Wild Growth Walker and a Merfolk Branch Walker. Well, now you get two more Wild Growth Walker triggers. So for the cost of four life, you get six back. And then you just keep going, and you just keep going, and you just keep going. And then you attack with what you can, and then you kill your opponent. Because ten is a lot. And that's the thing, like, that similar to Traverse, similar to Lightning Bolt, when the most fair application of this card is play a bunch of stuff out of my library and maybe accidentally kill you. Card's probably a little too strong. Now, I know, I know, it's six mana. I know. In most constructed formats, if it's six mana, it better win the game. But the fact of the matter is, this thing is just really, really good. 
And then you get to throw in the wombo combo, if you will, of playing it in the sacrifice decks. Playing it alongside a card like Mayhem Devil. Whenever you sacrifice a permanent, deal one damage to any target. So when you sacrifice 10 permanents to deal, to make them lose 10 life, you also deal 10 damage and you probably just kill them out of nowhere. So that's probably going to get you there. That seems really strong. Really, really strong. It's a haymaker. And it can dominate the board. Or kill the opponent outright. Or do both. Like you're trying to dominate the board and you just kind of accidentally kill them. And as anybody who's ever played Commander can tell you, some of the most fun games happen when you just accidentally kill everybody. Like you weren't planning on it. You were just trying to do a bunch of stuff to crawl back into the game and oops, everybody else died. So, it's got value in 60 card formats, particularly in Historic and Pioneer. But it's got a ton of value in Commander. Where it can come down and lend an un it's future sight, but even better. Because it allows you to trade the, the resource that you've got the most plentiful of in life total. In order to just flood the board with a bunch of stuff. And with any kind of an untapped shenanigans or with like Havoc Jester and uh, Mayhem Devil on the battlefield, you can just obliterate tables. You can either stabilize the board and deal everybody 10, or you can, you know, have a perfor you hit a perforos, you hit an Avenger of Zendikar, you make a ton of damage. That gives you plenty of tokens to sacrifice for the minus 10, and that gives you plenty of permanents to dome them for a ton with the other stuff. Like, the leap from this card being un very, very good to being thoroughly, utterly disgusting is really short. It's like leaping from one side of the sidewalk to the other side of the sidewalk. It's like stepping across a crack on a sidewalk. That's the, the distance you have to cover. For this card to go from really good to stupid broken. So, you can do a whole lot worse for $6. And last but not least, we have our only actual multicolored card in and this one is kind of a, a pet card of mine more than it is like a really really stupid strong budget spotlight pickup but again it's in that six dollar price range it's chosen more with an eye on commander than 60 card formats but it has some legs in 60 card formats in particular historic and that card is Corvold Fae Cursed King Corvold is two a black a red and a green and that buys you a 4-4 dragon with flying. Maybe trample, I can't remember, it doesn't matter. 4-4 flying dragon. And when Corvald enters the battlefield or attacks, you can sac you sacrifice another permanent. 
And it says whenever you're, anyone sacrifices a permanent, or it says whenever you sacrifice a permanent, put a plus one, plus one counter on Corvald and draw a card. Are y'all kidding me with this thing? I mean, clearly, because it came out in the Brawl deck in Throne of Eldraine, this thing was designed with the express purpose of making people angry in Commander because of how thoroughly it invalidates every other aristocrat-based commander in the format. Because there's just nothing this powerful. Prosh is, like, fine by comparison. But if you just play Prosh in the 99 of Korvald, it's even dumber. Because then you can kill two people. <laughs> Either way, even if you're playing Prosh as the as the general, like play Corvald in the ninety nine because it's stupid. In sixty card formats, this has one of my favorite unwritten lines of text on it. That being, uh, if you untap with this thing, you're probably going to win. And I've experienced that before on the card Nivmizit Parun. And it's something that I like to experience. To this date, I have lost a grand total of one game that I've ever played where I've untapped with Niv-Mizzet Parun in play. I would argue that the same thing goes for Corvold. I don't know that I've ever lost a game where I've untapped it with it. Like, I've gotten to untap my mana with this thing in play. And even if I hadn't, you know, that doesn't say I lost every game where I didn't get to. Because the value it provides is immense. Tremendous. And yes, I just did the hand thing because I'm a horrible person. But, you know, jamming this thing down in standard and sacrificing an afterlife creature, draw a card, put a plus one plus one counter on it, end step, Activate Witch's Oven, Sacrifice Cauldron Familiar, make a food, put a plus one, plus one counter on it, sacrifice the food, bring the witch, the Cauldron Familiar back, put a plus one, plus one counter on it, draw a card. You lose one life, I gain one life. If there's Mayhem Devil involved, we're pinging down blockers, like that's two triggers. Untap. Tap Witch's Oven, Sacrifice... Cauldron Familiar, put a plus one, plus one counter on Corval, draw a card. It goes from five to dead, like immediately. There was at least one game I played where I played Corvald, and then the next turn it attacked my opponent for like 15. Like the leap between that thing being a little bit of value and just accidentally drawing like 10 cards and killing your opponent out of nowhere is even less of a distance to travel than the Bolas of Citadel analogy. And it gets better than that because in Commander, the leap between an attack for 5+, plus and going full Voltron on the entire table, not very big. A card like Breath of Fury, for example. Breath of Fury enchants a creature you control whenever you attack. You can sacrifice another creature if you do, the creature enchanted with Breath of Fury can untap and give you another combat phase. Well, then every time Korvald attacks, you also sacrifice a thing 
and put a plus one plus one counter on it and draw a card. But wait. So that means two cards for every attack. And then you can draw two cards. Uh, which you can discard for zombie infestation to make tokens. Which Corvold can eat for both Breath of Fury and its own ability. So we can just keep going. And it gets bigger with every attack. See where I'm going with this. It goes from aggressively fine to oops, I killed everybody really fast. So keep that in mind when you're evaluating things to pick up. Like Corvald, as a build around me commander, where a lot of the core pieces for the deck are stupid, stinking cheap, the commander itself being able to be that power level but still be right around the $6 price chain price uh, price point sorry forgot my words you can do a lot worse I mean it's just gonna annihilate some people and I don't mean annihilator although that's really funny with it it's just gonna it's just gonna do a thing and it's real good at that thing now speaking of decks that do a thing we're gonna move on to our second segment and that's Brew of the Week. Brew of the Week is here. And this time, it's more an abstract construct. As I, I, I put in, I said, as is becoming tradition on this show, this is more of an abstract concept than a finalized list. The core of this archetype is rooted in a very parasitic mechanic that is deceptively easy to build around. And that mechanic is energy. Yes, I'm talking about a Jund energy deck. Jund energy. Those two words do, in fact, go together. The core of the deck is a Tune with Aether, Long Tusk Cup, Wint Sleeve Siphoner, and Harness Lightning. Because that core, when everything comes together correctly and you're not in a bad matchup, i.e. a combo deck where removal and gradually uh, accruing card advantage doesn't matter you do a really really good job of dominating the board uh, notably long tusk cub can get out of hand very quickly and you're in the right colors to keep things off the table that will get in the way so the amount of pressure you can put on with a long tusk cub in jund energy compared to teamer Yes, I know Teamer gets Rogue Refiner, so you can more easily do the, like, turn three, Long Tusk Cubs a 5-5. Five five. But, for those of you who don't know, like, energy is a mechanic where cards give you energy, it's counters that go on you, and then you can spend it to activate abilities of cards that use it. Long Tusk Cub makes an energy every time it, or makes one or two energy every time it connects with an opponent. And then you can spend two energy to put a plus one, plus one counter on it. Uh, Glint Sleeve Siphoner, when it enters the battlefield or attacks, you get one energy. And then you can spend two energy in your upkeep to draw a card and lose a life. Attune with Aether is Lay of the Land that gives you two energy. And it was so good at producing excess energy, it got banned. And then Harness Lightning gives you three energy then you can spend any amount that you have to deal that much damage to a creature for two mana. 
So like, if you're capable of producing excess energy, this thing just turns into Terminate. But that core typically gets married to supplemental engines when you start talking about playing it in Jund. And there's a reason for that. I mean, you don't have the benefit of Rogue Refiner and cards like Confiscation Coup or uh, Warlord Virtuoso to give you even more just play these things, get energy, sink energy, get a thing. So by that token, you are both less linear, but also a little bit less, like, starved for energy. So Engine 1 is a counters sub-theme, playing Winding Constrictor, uh, Rishkar Pima Renegade, and potentially, like, Verterous Gear Hulk as a career, as a career, a curve topper. I, I promise I know how to speak this language. Uh... Winding Constrictor notably says whenever a counter would be placed on a creature or player, add an additional one of those counters instead. So, Attune with Aether makes three energy. Longtusk Cub connecting makes three energy, and then spending two energy puts two plus one plus one counters on it. So it goes from being a card that gets a little out of hand pretty quick to being a card that gets really out of hand like the turn it connects if you play Constrictor. If you are fortunate enough to be able to combine, you know, Long Tusk Cub on turn two into Winding Constrictor plus a removal spell on turn three. That 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 telegraphs a whole lot of damage. Like a whole lot. You can do a whole lot worse. And then you have cards like Rishkar Pima Renegade, which naturally curves, gives you, like, you have a natural turn four kill with Rishkar and Verderous Gearhulk because you can, you can, uh, Winding Constrictor on turn two. You can attune on turn one if you want to. That's fine. But you can Winding Constrictor on turn two, Rishkar on turn three, attack for four. Because Rishkar puts one plus one plus one counter on up to two target creatures. Or lets you distribute two plus one plus one counters. So you can put one on each creature and that gives you four. Because it puts two on each thanks to Winding Constrictor. Attack for four with Winding Constrictor, turn three, or turn four, you can tap... I guess it wouldn't be a turn four kill, but a natural turn five kill anyway. Turn three, you convert her as Gear Hulk, which lets you distribute four plus one plus one counters. So you can put one on each of your creatures, which doubles to two. So your uh, Winding Constrictor is now a six. Your Winding Constrictor is now a six seven. Your Rishkar is now a six six. And your Verterous Gear Hulk becomes a 7-7 a seven, seven because you put the, the extra counter on it. And you attack for 6, and then on the next turn you have well more than lethal. You can, you know, throw in Nissa Voice of Zendikar to put plus one plus one counters on the whole team. Like, this thing gets out of hand very, very quickly. 
you just kind of stick your foot in the ground and go get them. You apply massive pressure while you accumulate energy. And then winding constrictor in conjunction with your energy cards makes them better too. When Harness Lightning can take out a 4-4 by itself. When Glint Sleeve Siphoner makes enough energy to draw a card every attack. Engine number two is Lurus's Companion, slotting in additional threats like Voltaic Brawler, maybe even Aether Chaser to recur. The idea behind this, this line of thought is the energy core itself is fairly small and easily distilled. Voltaic Brawler applies additional pressure. You know, Brawler, Cub, and Siphoner apply plenty of pressure. Aether Chaser can help you chump block or just give you something to do with extra energy every time it attacks. Uh, but you're more interested in this line if you are leaning into a more interactive variant. So if you're interested in cards like Thoughtseize, if you're interested in cards like additional removal spells to supplement your Harness Lightning and take some of the pressure off of it. That's the line you want to take because your creatures do a better job of sticking around. Because even if they manage to kill them, if they don't do it with an exile spell, you can just get them back. So, that seems pretty good to me. Engine number three is the electrostatic pummeler package. And this one is a little bit of a darling for me. Because... With Electrostatic Pummeler, you have the capacity to just annihilate your opponent out of nowhere. Electrostatic Pummeler being a three drop, makes three energy when it enters, and you can spend three energy to double its power, or it gets plus X plus X till end of turn where X is its power. In a format, in Pioneer at least, where we have access to Teamer Battle Rage. in a format in Historic, where we have access to a card like Unleash Fury, which can do that in addition for two mana, double its power. In Pioneer, you also pick up Become Immense, plus six, plus six. So you can play that first, make it a seven, double it to 14, then give it double strength. Like, just kills people. It's like playing Infect. But why would we look to play Jund instead of Teamer or one of the Marvel decks? Well, access to discard spells in post-board games keeps opponents from reliably going over the top of you, which is a kind of a trademark for Jund decks. You have to make sure they can't go over the top of you because by and large what you're doing is trying to make them play a fair game of Magic. And if they are ever allowed to not have to play a fair game of Magic, you are not likely to win that game. It's better in longer games due to its ability, due to its impetus on Siphoner as its primary energy sink in longer games. You are using energy to get very real card advantage. Siphoner becomes your primary outlet because you need that thing to sit there on the table and keep drawing you cards. And it's also infinitely more fun to tune and tweak due to a lesser focus on the, the teamer energy that we all know and loved where you are all in on the best cards. You are just playing the best cards. Well, in Jund, your best cards are the beaters. The Siphoner, the Cub, the Harness, you know, Harness Lightning is a removal spell. But I love it. Because there's something 
honest and pure about playing fair magic every now and then. And that's what Jund Energy gets to do. You get to play fair magic with just that little tinge of unfair that the energy cards allow you to take advantage of. So anyway, uh, moving on into our main topic this week, I want to talk about the Shard of Jund, because, I mean, nobody ever does that, right? So what is Jund? Well, in the lore, Jund is one of five shards of Alara and the Locus of Black, Red, and Green Mana. It's sort of a case study in predation left unchecked. Life on Jund is about one factor. Power. Survival is not guaranteed. The most dangerous predators rule the roost. It's kind of a like a volcanic jungle with massive valleys carved into it by the lava and into those valleys go the the non-dragon sentient beings you know you have random creatures running around all over it's kind of a you know survival of the fittest to the exclusion of anything else just raw untamed power and, and you know power and might of nature only the strong survive and the strong eat the weak well how does this translate into gameplay well mechanically it gives us their printed mechanic devour which is devour with a number after it and when this creature enters the battlefield for each creature you sacrificed to uh to devour put that many plus one plus one counters on it so for example the card michaeloth had devour two so for each creature you sacrificed in order to devour with Michaeloth, I think it was Michaeloth, I genuinely cannot remember, uh, you would put two plus one plus one counters on it. So frequently it was just one counter, you know, one, one devour trigger would give you two counters, and then every upkeep it would make you two sapperling tokens with which to devour further. Or there was... Uh, fledgling dragon i can't remember the name of it but it would uh devour devour one but then when it entered the battlefield it would uh deal x damage where x is the number of goblins it devoured so on and so forth it was a really cool unique mechanic and it was a really good depiction of a strong predator growing even stronger by you know, consuming weak prey to increase its power. Trope-wise, when Jund is designed to play together, which is to say when those three colors are supposed to be together by design in the set, either in a multicolored set or in something like Eldraine, where incidentally there's enough synergy that you want to play all of it. Uh... We see an abundance of sacrifice enablers and payoffs along with a bevy of efficient threats and answers. And that's kind of one of the key signature tropes of Jund, right? Is a combination of really good threats and answers and some form of synergy to build around. But as such, Jund decks tend to heavily fall into the mid-range spectrum, but tend to move to both edges with some degree of regularity. 
which is to say they're very rarely just aggro or just control-ish mid-range decks. They're very rarely like all the way one way or the other, but they tend to be leaning one way or the other. They tend to be either more reactive or more proactive, depending on the constraints of the formats where you're building the deck. And in Commander, the common Jund tropes are Aristocrats and Ramp, as these are heavily supported on Jund Legends. They also tend to heavily use the Graveyard as a primary resource. All that to say, I mean, Jund is, by and large, a mindset. It's a mentality. The idea that, at least early on, I've got either this engine that allows me to outlast you until I can get to my cards that are more powerful than yours, or I'm using cards that are more powerful than yours to get to a point where I can. Find an engine that allows me to outlast you. So... Like, at its core, at its peak, Jund is less the combination of colors and more the strategic implementation. You know, Brad, Brad Nelson once famously referred to the mono-red uh, aggro deck during Hour of Devastation Standard with Heart of Kirin and Goblin Chain Whirler and Chandra Torch of Defiance and Glorybringer Brad lovingly referred to that deck as Mono Red Jund, because by and large, that's what it was. It had the best removal spells, it had the best creatures, and it had the best sort of engine cards in Heart of Kirin and Chandra. And even when it comes to Commander, you look at some of the Jund Commanders, Crush the Bloodbraided. It was just one of the better payoffs for playing Sacrifice Synergies. He gets really stinking big and punches your opponent in the face. You look at a card like Prosh, Sky Raider of Care. Makes a bunch of tokens. You sacrifice those tokens, he punches somebody in the face. You look at Corvold, Faker's King. Every time you sacrifice stuff, it gets bigger. And what do you do with something that gets big? You punch your opponent in the face. And yes, technically there are Jund sacrifice like combo decks and aggro decks over the spectrum over the years. Be it like Jund Death Shadow or uh, oh, I'm drawing a blank. But by and large, Jund tends to fall heavily into this mid-range category. They're very linear. They're 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 like linear in their non-linear behavior, which is to say, there's very rarely like a ton of synergy going on and more likely it's just kind of incidental that it happens to play along with what you're interested in so notable some notable decks over the years for jund jund cascade was kind of my introduction to them and it was for a lot of people because jund as a name didn't exist until shards of alara in 2000 Fall of 2008, I believe. That sounds right. And Jun Cascade was that deck after uh, Lorwyn rotated from Standard. And we had Jund as just far and away the best deck in Standard. It was kind of the purest form of the deck. And I used purest in air quotes because it's actually made up of actual Jund cards 
from the set that Jun was introduced in. Uh, Shards of Alara, Conflux, and Alara Reborn, respectively. It operated on an aggressive... Uh, Operated as an aggressive mid-range deck, capable of blistering starts with Bloodbraid Elf, Putrid Leech, Sprouting Thrynax, and Garuk Wildspeaker. Like, in matchups where your opponents weren't interested in trying to interact with you, you could just Putrid Leech on two, Sprouting Thrynax attack you for four on three, Bloodbraid Elf into Blightning, Dome you for three, make you discard two cards... Attack you for three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. That's really fast. And then on turn five, you would Garuk, make a token, you've still got more bodies, or you would Garuk, untap, removal spell, keep up the pressure. You know, you were capable of just smashing your opponent's face in very quickly if you were left unchecked. But it also played the long game really well thanks to a bevy of two-for-one threats like the aforementioned Bloodbraid Elf. But moreover, the top of its curve with cards like Siege Gang Commander, which we know and love today in Historic because of its propensity to flood the board with threats, and uh, Broodmate Dragon, which is four mana, buys you eight-eight worth of flying power spread across two bodies. Or six mana, rather. Six mana bought you eight Power and toughness, flying, split across two bodies. Six mana. That's really good. And then uh, the aforementioned Blightning being uh, one of black and red. Deal three damage to your opponent. That player discards two cards. So, you know, you could, you could take advantage of card advantage by way of the fact that between those and then your one-for-one -one removal, you could kind of grind your way through any given matchup based on the fact that you just didn't run out of stuff. And this deck dominated standard until Rise of the Eldrazi gave blue-white control enough tools to keep up. And that was when they got Gideon and Marshall Koo, I believe. Or maybe it was just when they got Gideon and then they just decided they were done trying to make the bad counter spells work. But, like, by and large, this deck was omnipresent everywhere to the point that I played a free entry win a box tournament right after I moved back home and I let Brett borrow the deck that we brewed and I played Jund and I kid you not I played tap land on turn one untap on turn two play another land play putrid leech and my opponent went oh it's it's Jund it's Jund it's like, yeah, yeah, it is. So, like, this was the deck that everybody else had to be. And yes, other decks had good weekends while Jund was in the format. There's no disputing that. Ironically, they tended to be Naya-flavored uh, mid-range decks that tried to just get a little bigger at the expense of winning the two-for-one battle. But by and large, this deck was at its peak for an entire year. Like, from the moment everything rotated out from Lorwyn, and Fairies wasn't there to keep pace with it, and the control decks lost a lot of their counter spells, this was the thing to do. The next one I want to talk about is Jund Food from 2020 Standard. And some of you are still having a level of magic 
induced PTSD from this deck. To clarify, like, this deck was silly, okay? You were very much green, black, red, but that red splash made all the difference with Mayhem, Devil, and Corvold. It was built around Cauldron Familiar, Witch's Oven, and Trail of Crumbs as your engine. And thankfully, because all of those cards are super cheap, you can get into that quickly and then steamroll your opponents with the inevitable barrage of card advantage you get from it. It allowed you to grind out aggro and control alike, and it played, eventually at least, it adopted Bolas' Citadel as a sort of combo finish to win out of nowhere. So to put it in perspective, like, Cauldron Familiar single-handedly was a thorn in the side of non-Embercleave aggro decks. Like, you couldn't not play Embercleave in your aggro decks and expect to reliably beat Cauldron Familiar without going into stuff like, you know, Winota into Agent of Treachery and that kind of stuff. Because you could just stonewall the biggest thing that didn't have evasion. Constantly. And then if Mayhem Devil was on the battlefield, you would sacrifice it, chip in for damage, keep going. This thing, this deck was just really, really good at what it did. And it was so good, it eventually got Cauldron Familiar banned in standard. And then last but not least, we have to talk about the elephant in the room if we're going to talk about Jund. And that is Jund with no modifiers whatsoever in Modern. So this was one of the earliest decks in Modern's Inception. Ironically, it was not nearly good enough when Modern first became a format, which some would argue is the case now. But now, the thing about Jund in, in Modern now is it is like the, the perfect encapsulation of what fair magic is supposed to look like in an unfair format. You try to take away the thing that goes over the top of you with Thought Seas and sideboard cards, you play efficient threats, you play efficient removal, and you play some amount of disruption. And you just cross your fingers and hope it's enough. Like, Dark Confidant links arms with a bunch of one and two mana removal spells to keep your hand full and keep your life total from plummeting too quickly. A card like Renin Six does a really good job of uh, creating a sense of inevitability by giving you... Uh, making sure you hit your land drops, make sure you have something to do late in the game if it survives. If you decide to go down the Luris's companion route, you've got that at your disposal. All of it's on the table for you. So, you know, whatever the case is, it's a deck designed with the entire purpose of trading one for one and then getting that card advantage back with cards like Dark Confidant and Lurus and Renin Six. That's how Jund wins. It is a mindset. It is an attitude. Not always a healthy attitude, mind you, but it is both of those things. It is a mindset, an attitude. It's a style of play as much as it is a deck. And at the end of the day, that's really what Jund is about, right? 
It wouldn't have the pedigree it did if it wasn't successful in many, many iterations. So that's all I got to say about it this week, everybody. Thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you've got questions, comments, concerns, send them to me on Twitter. I'm at HomewardPathMTG. Send them to me on Facebook. My name is Adam Spain. You can find me in the Facebook group for the show, The Homeward Pathfinders. If you're a patron of the show, you are obviously in the Patron Pathfinders Discord where we're talking about episode topics. We're at $3 or more a month, you get your deck pushed to the front of the line for the Brew of the Week segment, and at $5 a month, I will write you your very own episode about the thing that you want, and we will collaborate on it. With all that out of the way, that's all I've got for this week. I'm going to kind of bankroll some dad jokes for another good episode with either a guest co-host or a more fitting topic. And with that, I will leave you with my traditional parting words. Listen, everybody's going through stuff right now. Times are utterly terrifying and stressful. So with that in mind, when we're dealing with people online, we have to remember Peter Capaldi, 12th Doctor, words of wisdom. Never be cruel. Never be cowardly. Remember, hate is always foolish. Love is always wise. Always try to be nice, but never fail to be kind. So... Laugh hard, jund them out, but be kind. And we'll catch you next week. Be safe, everybody.